Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. This is an encore presentation of an earlier Access Utah. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Oceans are a sonic symphony. Sound is essential to the survival and prosperity of marine life, but man-made ocean noise is threatening this fragile world. So say the producers of a documentary film, Sonic Sea, which takes us beneath the ocean's surface to uncover the consequences of increased ocean noise pollution, including the mass stranding of whales around the planet. The film also looks at what can be done to stop the problem. Today we're going to talk about this with Daniel Heinerfeld. He's co-director of Sonic Sea and director of multimedia and film at the Natural Resources Defense Council. Uh, Daniel Heinerfeld, uh, welcome to the program. Hi, good to be here. And uh, we bring in as well Michael Jasney, director of the NRDC's Marine Mammal Protection Program. Thanks for joining us. Uh, great to be here, Tom. Thanks. We're also going to be hearing sound clips uh, from from the film. Let me start with you, uh, Daniel Heinerfeld. By the way, um, you're a former NPR producer, I understand. That's right. Yeah, years ago I worked at NPR uh, in Los Angeles for the network. Okay, a part of the family then uh, here, right. here on public radio. Uh, so um, I, I think, in fact, you have Sting saying this, the, the musician saying this in the film, and I, I think a lot of us are fairly unaware of this problem. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, you know, the ocean in general is out of sight and out of mind, and in this case, we're talking about a phenomenon that you can't even see if you're in the ocean. Uh, you're talking about the, the fact, and it's really a, a singular fact, that the ocean is an acoustic environment um, in which you know, so many of the animals, we think first of whales, have, have evolved for millions of years to favor the ability to hear and be heard over the ability to see. And um, they are magnificent singers and communicators, and they use sound in all sorts of extraordinary ways. But, you know, in recent decades, we have utterly changed that acoustic habitat, that, ac that acoustic world that they have depended on for so long. And that really is what the movie tries to convey, that we've brought about enormous changes in, in this regard, and it's changing life in profound ways for so many species. Michael Jasney, I wonder if you could uh, and maybe spell it out a little, uh, continue with that. So it's, take whales, uh, for, for one example, a uh, magnificent animal. Um, you know, they, they do see, but, it, but it's the hearing, I think, that, that's uh, the, the bigger part of how they navigate their world. Yeah, that, that's right. And they, they use sound for virtually everything they do in the wild and, indeed, everything they have to do to survive and, and, and reproduce and maintain healthy populations. Uh, they, they use it to, to find food. They use it to, to find mates. Uh, they use it to avoid predators and navigate and maintain their social bonds and orient themselves in the water. They, they use it for virtually everything. Um, in some cases, um, as with the, the, the great whales, the great baleen whales, like blue whales, fin whales, they use sound over extraordinary distances as well, at scales that just, I think, boggle the human imagination. Um, some of these species are communicating with one another um, for the most essential purposes uh, across entire ocean basins, the Atlantic, the Pacific. It's, it's quite amazing. Uh, it, it was very impactful for me, for me to, uh, one of the scientists talks about how some whales can live you know, 150, 200 years. And, and so, you know, you, you 
pick, say, at, at just a whale, uh, when that whale was a, was a teenager, the ocean was a lot more silent than it is today, and that how that must be very stressful to have that, that increase uh, by, I, you know, such proportions. Yeah, I mean that's it's 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 a pretty pretty amazing fact that that these changes have come about within the lifetime of of an individual animal. And uh, when when say a uh, a bowhead whale uh, was was young, um, the ships that they would encounter were by and large sailing ships. They didn't have these massive propeller screws uh, uh, pushing them through the through the water. Uh, and since then, there's the change has been has been radical uh, since the 1950s, 1960s. Uh, just the amount of noise in the ocean, particularly in the low frequencies that so many of these species uh, rely on, uh, has has doubled with each decade. So, understand that learning from the film, uh, whales can hear storms brewing a thousand miles away. It's it's that yeah, sensitive. No, that, that's, that's right. I mean, they, their situational awareness uh, is extraordinarily broad, and, and the ocean enables that. You know, sound uh, travels very, very well in seawater, travels much further and faster in seawater than it does in air. And uh, whales and, and other marine species really take advantage of that. Let's hear a uh, clip from the film. I think we have this uh, prepared. Um, this is early on in the film. I believe this is Chris Clark, a, a, a scientist, at, and who, who studies sounds in, in the ocean. So this is, he calls this the symphony of life. He's listening underwater uh, for, the, for the first time. Everywhere on Earth, we can hear the songs of life from the smallest insects to the largest animals on the planet. But most of us only hear half of this living symphony. There's a completely different orchestra playing beneath the surface of the sea. One of the most memorable moments I have in my life was the first time I put on headphones in the Arctic. It's gray and white. It's almost sensory, complete sensory deprivation. I can't smell anything. I can barely taste anything. We found a little opening of water in which I dropped two underwater microphones. Put on the headphones, I was completely amazed. Bearded seals coming out of the ether as though they were from the Martian Chronicles. Beluga whales chirping and chattering and clicking. And then the bowhead whales roaring low frequency moans. And it was like, Oh my God, this is fantastic. So that is a portion from the film. Uh, uh, Daniel Heinerfeld, did I get that right? Was that Chris Clark? Yeah, that's Chris from Cornell. 
Yeah, he, he is um, really an extraordinary character in the movie. He has dedicated his life to collecting sounds, studying sounds, and uh, understanding how animals communicate with sound. And <clears throat> he's so passionate about uh, about this beautiful world and about protecting it, and he's a very important character in the film. It's, it's amazing to hear that, and I think it might have been him in the film who says, we, most of us, hear half the symphony. We only hear above the water. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we don't think about it often because you know we live in our terrestrial world but most of the world is covered by water and uh, there's a vast universe beneath the waves that we just you know most of us don't have access to and um, you know it's interesting we've screened the film uh, in various places around the country and uh, in in a number of locations right on the water here in Los Angeles and uh, in Newport recently and in Boston and um, we often encounter scuba divers and uh, and other people who are in the water a lot, and they have a really emotional reaction to the film because uh, all of this is so meaningful to them. You know, if you really do put your head underwater for any uh, bit of time, whether you're snorkeling or uh, scuba diving, you, you have a different appreciation uh, about what's happening, what's happening in the ocean, and how differently it operates from the way you know we live here here on land. Michael Jasny, what Jean-Michel Cousteau uh, later in the film says, uh, you know, put on your snorkel, put your head underwater, and listen. Uh, is that what we need more people to do to, to bring awareness to this? Oh yeah, it's certainly part of what what we what we need to do. I think, as Daniel said before, uh, this this can be a, a very remote issue for for people, a hard one to to wrap their head around, and that's because you know we we humans are are profoundly visual creatures, uh, and yet what we're talking about is an entirely uh, alternative means of, of, of communicating and, and, and living. Um, and and it, going, going uh, scuba diving, going snorkeling uh, are, are certainly uh, great ways to, to begin to uh, experience and appreciate the, the, the difference and, and the beauty of, of this of this underwater world of, of sound, but I, I think it I think it goes it goes beyond that too. Um, I, I, I think uh, you know it, what 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 it's also important for uh, for for folks to just pay more attention to the oceans as a an environment that that we have to protect that we have to protect uh, not only uh, for its own intrinsic worth but for the enormous benefit that. That it provides humans uh, always, always has, and, and always, and always will. Um, so uh, I, I think it's a it's a combination of, of personal experience, folks getting out in the water, um, but also uh, just just paying more attention to the oceans as uh, an environment we we really must do much more to conserve and protect. If you just join us, we're talking uh, to uh, two people involved with the uh, film Sonic Sea. By the way, the website is sonicsea.org, and uh, it's put out by the NRDC. 
Um, we're talking with Daniel Heinerfeld, uh, co-director of the film. He's also director of multimedia and film at Natural Resources Defense Council. Michael Jasney is with us as well, director of NRDC's Marine Mammal Protection Program. And we're hearing sound clips uh, from the film. You can join us here at 1-800-826-1495, toll-free, 1-800-826-1495. You can also reach us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Let's hear uh, just a little clip here. This is a, a sound of a ship traveling, a shipping sound. So imagine a you know whale in the, in the ocean, and uh, how would this in, impact a, a whale? Let's hear this. So that's one ship, and that, that, that was pretty noisy. Um, so Michael Jasney, multiply that by how many? The, the, you know, the, the oceans are pretty busy with shipping. Yeah, there are around about 60,000 uh, commercial vessels on the water at, at any given time. And because sound travels so very far underwater, uh, all, of, all of the sound, uh, it, it all mixes and merges, and it, it, it's really blanketed much of the ocean uh, with, with noise. Um, the noise virtually anywhere you go, um, whether it's uh, in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean or you know, down in the, in the open ocean in the southern hemisphere, uh, or even now in, in the Arctic, you, 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 will hear, you will hear shipping noise. It may not sound like, like uh, the, the kind of uh, turning propeller that you hear in that clip, but uh, it, it'll just be this background level of noise that uh, is much higher than it should be. And, and it's that, that kind of a smog of noise that, that is making it so extremely hard for uh, marine mammals and, and other species to communicate. Daniel Heiderfeld, one of your experts in film, uh, calls this acoustically bleaching the ocean. What do they mean by that? Yeah, that's also Chris Clark who says that. And, and I think along the lines of uh, the metaphor that Michael just used, you know, this, Michael often calls this acoustic smog. Um, and, and I think bleaching is another way of thinking about it. You know, uh, that line occurs when we're sort of seeing um, an animation of the globe and um, hearing all sorts of communication across the ocean. Uh, and then, uh, as Clark says that, uh, the ocean sort of goes white as if it's been bleached and static sort of fills the, the sound channels. And I think that is kind of the experience that a lot of animals in the ocean are having, that um, what was a, a quiet environment uh, that transmitted sound you know, beautifully over great distances has become this very noisy, staticky place where they can't communicate above all of the noise that we're making. And, um, you know, it's... Uh, Chris Clark also sounds like he's the only source in the film, but he's not. He also uh, has a, a brilliant line. He, he says, you know, whales see with their ears. They see with sound. And um, I think it's important for us to, to try to think about that, to get out of our own heads. I mean, we're so uh, used to perceiving the world visually, the idea that creatures could really perceive the world as accurately as we do and as effectively as we do, but using their ears instead of their eyes, I think is hard for us to imagine, but that's really the case. 
Michael Jasny, uh, what what is the effect uh, then on send whales, dolphins, whatever species? What uh, how does this affect them? Well, if I can extend Daniel's point uh, about which is you know comes from Chris Clark about seeing the world with sound, the the extension of that idea uh, is is that when you make it uh, difficult for for whales to to hear and other species to hear, you you effectively blind them. Um, A a mature whale can scarcely see its own flukes or or tail in in the water. Uh, It's it's just a a fact of life in the ocean that, uh, and you know this if you've ever gone diving, that uh, at at best you can see a couple hundred feet uh, away. Uh, And and yet these animals uh, have an image of, of their world that extends for, for in some cases, I mean, hundreds of miles. Um, all that noise in the ocean is, is effectively blinding them, is reducing their world to little more than the, than the length of their own bodies. Hmm. Uh, and the, the impacts of noise go, go well beyond this. Uh, as you can imagine, when you interfere with such a, a fundamental element of the marine environment, you can cause uh, just a wide range of, of impacts on marine life. Uh, so the, the scientific literature now is, is abundant with, with studies showing noise uh, uh, causing animals to abandon their habitat and to cease singing or vocalizing and to lose their ability to respond to predators and to um, increase their stress levels, which over time uh, can, can result in, in very adverse uh, health effects uh, in marine mammals as, as, it, does in, as it does in humans, uh, all, all the way to impacts uh, like uh, stranding and injury and death. So uh, there's just a uh, a sweeping impact that that uh, our our noise, uh, our industrialization of the sea is, is having on on uh, whales and fish and, and other species. One of the experts in the film says whales can't turn the volume down, and as I, I make a direct correlation in my mind to, I guess in some extreme cases that that's what leads to beaching. Does it? You just have yeah, to get yeah, out of there. There, there have been now a, a, a long series of uh, mass strandings of whales associated with a number of uh, sources of, of human noise. Uh, the, the source uh, that's been most studied in this regard is military sonar. So in, in order to look for uh, targets in, in the water, uh, largely submarines, the, the, main, the main target, uh, the, the U.S. Navy and other navies uh, put out sound, and the, the sound reflects off objects in the water and then comes back uh, to, to the, the sending ship. And, and from this, uh, the Navy can, can image what's out there. They've actually taken this technique from, from dolphins uh, and, and studied a dolphin echolocation uh, in, in developing the sonar technology we have today. Unfortunately, the, the noise or the sound... Uh, uh, that, that they produce is, is just it's very, very loud and, and very uh, disruptive. Uh, I think a lot of marine mammal species perceive it as, as a threat and they respond accordingly. Uh, so uh, we, we see now in, in uh, beaches around the world that uh, uh, where the 
U.S. Navy and other navies are, are operating or are using sonar, uh, these mass mortalities of, of whales can occur where uh, whales wind up uh, dead and dying over, over uh, in some cases, hundreds of miles of beach. Let's so uh, we have some uh, some audio here. Let's hear some navy uh, sonar. Yeah, I could uh, imagine that it probably didn't get the full effect, you know. Um here above water, but uh, that must be, uh, and there's a, a part in the film, one of your experts, uh, Ken Balcom, who's a former Navy man, he's in Washington State, he said he could hear the sonar on land, and he, he, he'd only imagine what it would do to the to the marine life, and sure enough, uh, the, the next day they found some, I think some porpoises, perhaps, uh, beached. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's... Um, yeah Ken is, uh, is, in a sense, uh, the linchpin of the film. Um, and he, uh, you know, because of his interests and because of, I guess, sheer coincidence or fate, um, happened to be present uh, at two different stranding events um, associated with military sonar, uh, one in the Bahamas and then a couple of years later, one up in, um, off of San Juan Island, uh, right in front of his home. And in that second incident, um, he was he was watching the event as uh, a U.S. Navy destroyer, the uh, the Shoop, uh, came into Harrow Strait with its sonar active, and um, he was he was recording this uh, with underwater microphones and uh, above water microphones and and filming it. And it's an extraordinary thing to watch. You see this this big threatening ship off on the horizon. Um, and this terrible screeching sound, uh, similar to what you just heard. And um, you see marine mammals um, behaving very strangely, some of them fleeing, some of them, the orca whales, grouping uh, very tightly and coming very near shore, all of them taking uh, evasive action. But one of the things that, that Ken says is that the, the sound was so intense that even without his microphones uh, underwater, you could hear the sonar above water. And that, that's really a significant uh, statement because there is, in a sense, a kind of uh, acoustical barrier uh, at, at where the water meets our atmosphere. And for a sound to travel from the water and into our atmosphere and be loud means that uh, it just must have been extraordinarily intense underwater. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll hear uh, more. I want to bring in a, a third problem. We'll get to solutions as well as you do in the film. Uh, this is uh, oil and gas exploration and, and the phenomenon of air guns, uh, which is uh, something I learned about to, from, from the film. This has to have quite the effect on marine life, uh, as apparently it does. We'll learn about that and more. We're uh, taking a listen to... Uh, clips from the film Sonic Sea, um, and it's looking at the problem of increased and increasing ocean noise pollution. We have with us Michael Jasney, director of NRDC's Marine Mammal Protection Program, and Daniel Heinerfeld, co-director of Sonic Sea and director of Multimedia and Film at NRDC. More following the break. This is Management Minute by Professor Scott Hammond. It's costly for a company not to have a constancy of purpose. I'm guilty of that most Saturday nights when we get in the car and go to dinner. 
We head towards one restaurant, change our minds, head towards another, and perhaps even another. Annoying, yeah, but costly, not very. But a company without constancy of purpose is in a death spiral. They invest in personnel and equipment to do one job, then head in another direction. They do a costly retool, then try again. If the pattern continues, the company will eventually run out of resources, time, and business. Excellent companies have a constancy of purpose. The Management Minute is brought to you by our members and the USU Shingo MBA program at the John M. Huntsman School of Business, a 15-month graduate degree for executives giving knowledge and skills to leverage the principles and tools of lean continuous improvement. Huntsman.usu.edu. Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. This is an encore presentation of an earlier Access Utah. We're talking about the Sonic Sea. Sonic Sea is the title of a film. Uh, the website is sonicsea.org. Producers say oceans are a sonic symphony. Sound is essential to the survival and prosperity of marine life, but man-made ocean noise is threatening this fragile world. We have with us Michael Jasney, director of NRDC's Marine Mammal Protection Program, and Daniel Heinerfeld, co-director of the film and director of multimedia and film at NRDC. You're welcome to join this conversation if you'd like at 1-800-826-1495 or by email to upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. So let's hear this uh, brief clip. This is um, air gun explosion underwater. This has to do with oil and gas exploration. So, uh, Daniel Heinerfeld, what's going on there? Yeah, so what you're hearing there is an air gun um, being towed by a ship that's hunting for oil and gas uh, beneath the ocean floor. And, um, you know, it's a process that's similar to sonar in a sense that Michael uh, explained earlier, where, uh, you know, a, a very loud noise is made. It says the sound waves travel through the water column. Uh, into uh, the, the ocean floor, and the reflection, the, the echo of those sounds, uh, creates a picture, when processed by a computer, of what's beneath the ocean floor. Um, so this is what the oil and gas industry has been doing for a long time, uh, as you know, uh, before they go out and, and build a, a platform or tow a platform out and start drilling someplace. And um, you know, the problem, once again, is that um, these make a gigantic noise, and it's not just once. Uh, a survey of an area for oil and gas will go on for weeks and weeks uh, with these detonations that you just heard happening every few seconds, every maybe 10 seconds. And um, it has a devastating impact. Um, I mean, in the film, we are introduced to uh, a fisherman in Norway, uh, Bjornar, who talks about how um, his catch drops by 60% uh, in the aftermath of uh, oil and gas surveys. And that's something that has been reported by fishermen uh, in various parts of the world, that uh, when the oil and gas industry comes in, starts hunting uh, using, using air guns, uh, the fish go away. And it's a, it's a finding that's been confirmed by scientists. 
Uh, and it also has a tremendous impact on, on marine mammals, as you might imagine. And I think Michael can explain that. Yeah, I was just wondering about that. What what actually happens to the to the animals physically? Yeah, well, uh, seismic exploration, these air gun uh, blastings, just have just has an enormous environmental footprint. And uh, what what scientists have observed uh, is is that uh, seismic silences. Uh, marine mammals, uh, particularly the endangered great whales, um, like humpback whales, bowhead whales, fin whales, over over just enormous distances of ocean. We're talking a scale of, of hundreds of thousands of, of uh, square kilometers. Uh, and uh, you know, if if marine mammals, if whales are unable to to vocalize, if they if they just basically give up because the sound is is uh, so loud that they uh, can just no longer communicate, uh, then they're uh, not able to uh, feed effectively. Many of them use uh, sound to uh, feed cooperatively. Uh, they're not able to, to breed well uh, because they can't find mates, uh, except at extremely close distances. Um, it's also been found to have uh, direct impacts on on foraging. Uh, so e- even at pretty low levels of exposure, uh, a wide variety of, of whales and dolphins and porpoises, uh, they they're just they're they just become less successful at at, at finding food. Um, their their success at at foraging uh, plummets. Uh, in in fish. Uh, the, this air gun use has been shown to uh, displace uh, commercial species over over very large distances, uh, causing them to to flee an area or uh, to completely change what they're doing and uh, reorient themselves in the water column uh, over uh, stretches of ocean the size of U.S. states, uh, and this is around single air gun arrays. So uh, the, this is an activity with, it just has a, a, an enormous uh, environmental footprint. Uh, Daniel Hunterfeld, one of the, uh, it's just one line from the film really brought it home to me, the impact, specific impact of uh, noise pollution in the ocean. Um, I learned from the film, whales apparently can get the bends. Um, and, and, you know, marine mammal, not supposed to get the bends, but I guess... Yeah, this... that's right. Um, and this actually gets back to uh, the issue of sonar that we were talking about earlier. And um, as Michael explained, you know, there have been um, a whole series of incidents around the world of mass strandings and mortalities of, of whales, you know, washing up on, on beaches or, or coming ashore in some sort of uh, injured state and then dying. And... Um, these have been associated with uh, naval sonar exercises. Then the question becomes, what exactly is happening to the whales? How are they becoming injured or disoriented? And um, increasingly, what the scientists believe is that uh, in many cases, uh, the mechanism of harm is that deep diving whales, for instance, beaked whales, um, are in a sense scared out of the water scared out of deep dives by these intense noises. So, uh, you know, a, a beaked whales, 
you know, foraging deep in an, in an ocean canyon will suddenly become assaulted by uh, the sound, you know, 235 decibel sound of mid-frequency sonar, and they will shoot straight towards the surface to escape the noise. And in the process of doing that, they give themselves decompression sickness or the bends um, because that is not how, just like a human diver, that's not how they are supposed to or how they normally surface. They normally surface in stages, just like a human diver would, in order to uh, compensate for the nitrogen in, in their uh, blood. And um, so, yes, whales should not be getting the bends, but uh, it looks like we are forcing them into situations in which they are. Michael Jasny, um, there's, I don't know how much debate there is about the effect. I, I can't be a whole lot of debate, right, in the scientific community anyway, about the effect of uh, noise pollution on, on marine life. But there there's a startling data point. Um, in the film, you talk about 9-11. What does 9-11 have to do with, with this? Yeah, it's actually uh, something that uh, tragedy engendered, um, a uh, remarkable observation uh, in, in marine science. And so there were a group of scientists from, uh, largely from the New England Aquarium, who had been studying uh, North Atlantic right whales uh, for, for some years. Uh, North Atlantic right whales are uh, a critically endangered uh, population. Uh, they're uh, well, roughly 450 to, to 500 of them left on the on the planet, uh, and the number is declining. Uh, they live entirely uh, off the the east coast of the United States and and, and southern Canada. Um, so these, these researchers uh, were very interested in in uh, uh, trying to assess the the health of of, of the species, um, and uh, to do so they. They went out and they collected fecal samples, um, literally whale poo uh, that was you know, picked up from the from the surface of the water and then analyzed for for its uh, stress markers. And what they found is that in in the year uh, 2001, um, as opposed to every other year of data that they had. There, there was this uh, remarkable decline in in stress seen in 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 right whales uh, off of New England, and when they looked closer and closer at the data, um, they they found that it, it turned around 9/11, um, and sure enough, when they when they looked at at ship data following 9/11. They, they found uh, within the few weeks following a, uh, you know, a, a very strong uh, drop-off in, in ship traffic in, in the area. Uh, just, they, they, they detected, in other words, a, a very strong correlation between the, the fall in, in ship traffic and uh, a, a decline in, in stress in, in right well, suggesting that that right whales are chronically stressed by, 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 by shipping noise. And this shouldn't be surprising. I mean, we know from studies of many other species, including humans, that chronic exposure to, to sound, even if the sound isn't, isn't terribly loud, uh, can, can raise our, our, our own stress levels. And over time, 
uh, reduce our uh, the, the effectiveness of our immune systems, uh, reduce our our ability to uh, even effectively reproduce, can cause heart disease, um, all, all sorts of, of health problems with time. And uh, you know, a lot of times we're not aware of it. Right. And it, yeah. It, you know, no, I, talking about humans. That's, yeah. That's right. I mean, the uh, I think a, a lot of this uh, stress response uh, happens beneath the surface of consciousness. Uh, this is another topic that's that's covered in the film. Uh, the stress stress response uh, is very primitive. I mean, it's common to to many animals that it, it occurred or its development occurred um, early in in uh, in our evolution, uh, and it, it occurred as a kind of a warning system against against predators. Um, we we scarcely know. Uh, most of the time when, when we're stressed, uh, but the constant uh, noise blaring in, in the urban environment or planes flying overhead, all of this has been shown to, to increase our, our stress response uh, and, and cause a real physiological injury over, over time. Daniel Heinerfeld, uh, I want to go to a break before I, we go. In the last segment, I want to get to solutions, as you do in the, in the film. Um, and you uh, you talk about how we've been successful before. Uh, industrial whaling was, was taken on. Uh, Jean-Michel Cousteau talks about his father, uh, Jacques Cousteau, the influence of the silent world, a film that uh, Jacques Cousteau made. Uh, before we go there, um, you, you interview uh, Sting, the musician. He has some interesting things to say. Um, he uh, he mentions that he has hearing impairment. That's not unusual for a professional rock musician, um, and he says he prefers silence. Right. Yeah, I'm so happy that Sting is in the film. Um, we we asked him to participate just because he is both you know an incredible musician, but such a thoughtful person and someone who is been dedicated for decades now to protecting the natural environment and yeah he says some really interesting stuff in the film including the fact that you know he grew up in a ship making uh, town in the north north of England and you know would um, would watch as a boy he would watch giant cargo ships and tanker ships being uh, launched into the water for the first time you know with the tremendous thunder of the this uh, vast uh, object, you know, sort of sliding into the water. And um, he kind of introduces in the film the whole discussion of shipping uh, and and does so with some really interesting reflections on, you know, his own sonic world and, and his relationship with sound. Let's go to break uh, more with... Uh... Uh, people involved with the film Sonic Sea. The film, the uh, website is sonicsea.org. We're talking with Daniel Heinerfeld, co-director of the film, and he's also director of multimedia and film at Natural Resources Defense Council. We're talking with Michael Jasney as well, director of NRDC's Marine Mammal Protection Program. More following the break. APM Reports investigates a notorious kidnapping to ask why it took so long to find a killer who was right there all along. Listen for In the Dark. American Public Media. Join us for this five-part series beginning this week. I'm Ronnie Adams, the Utah chapter leader for the Stop Abuse Campaign, inviting you to learn more about Utah projects and people that empower during Utah Public Radio's original series, Objectified, More Than a Body. 
Tuesday afternoons at 4.30 during All Things Considered and Wednesday mornings at 7.41 during Morning Edition. Program listings and times found at upr.org. Heard only on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. This is an encore presentation of an earlier Access Utah. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're pleased to be talking about an uh, interesting film, Sonic Sea. Uh, the producers say, Oceans are a sonic symphony. Sound is essential to the survival and prosperity of marine life, but man-made ocean noise is threatening this fragile world. We're talking with Michael Jasney, director of NRDC's Marine Mammal Protection Program, and Daniel Heinerfeld, who's co-director of Sonic Sea and director of multimedia and film at NRDC. Uh, let me start uh, with this uh, segment with Michael Jasney. Uh, I want to get into solutions, as you do in the film. So we still need to ship goods, and a very high percentage of our goods are uh, involved uh, shipping over the oceans. We still need the uh, Navy still needs to protect themselves from enemy submarines. Still going to want to explore for for uh, you know gas and oil. Uh, what are the solutions? Yeah, well, for, fortunately, this this is a solvable problem, and, and maybe maybe we could just start with. With, with ships, um, a lot of the sound that uh, ships produce is is just unwanted sound. It doesn't serve any any purpose. Um, indeed, um, in in some cases, the noise coming from the propeller, it the sound represents a, a waste of energy, um, energy that's not going into actually uh, driving the propeller around, uh, but uh, is, uh, is is just uh, escaping in in the form of in the form of noise uh, from the from the ship, um, so there are uh, engineering and design solutions that are available to uh, reduce the sound without without reducing efficiency, and in fact, uh, potentially significantly increasing the efficiency of, of ships. And these involve, for example, um, modifying the the propeller uh, of, of ships. Uh, things that can be done both on new builds of vessels, but also uh, retroactively on, on ships that are already built at relatively low, low cost. And that cost, in some cases, can be gained back over the, the life of the ship in the form of uh, reduced fuel needs. Um, uh, other things like just isolating the, the engine uh, from the hull of the ship so that the mechanical noise uh, isn't conducted out into the water. Um, uh, and, and there are uh, operational changes that, that can be made that can also reduce impacts. Uh, it's been shown there's pretty clear uh, correlation, almost uh, one decibel of sound for every additional knot of speed that a, that a, a, a ship um, uh, uh, adds. And, and so if you just reduce the speed of, of ships, um, you can significantly reduce the noise they, they put out in the water and, and also uh, have, have benefits for the, the pollution output of, those, of, of, uh, of the ships or contribution to, to air pollution, uh, and uh, uh, there are other environmental benefits as well. Daniel Heinefeld, what about the sonar? Is, it, is the Navy working on this problem? I should defer to Michael on this. He's okay. really one of the world's leading experts. On oh, this okay. okay. Let's let's, take it away. let's hear from Michael. Yeah, sure. Well, I, the the main uh, means.
means of reducing impacts from sonar on, on marine life is to uh, avoid important habitat, uh, particularly for species like, like beaked whales. So it's a whole family of deep diving species that Daniel uh, mentioned before uh, that, have, that are known to uh, suffer acute effects, uh, including severe cases of decompression sickness or the bends on, on exposure to, to, to sonar. Um, th this is an issue that we've been fighting with the U.S. Navy on for, for years. Uh, last year, we won a, a, a big case um, concerning the Navy's use of sonar and explosives in, in routine uh, training and, and testing uh, off of Southern California and, and Hawaii. Uh, the court sided with uh, plaintiffs on, on every environmental issue that, that we raised. And in the, in the wake of that decision, uh, we were able to sit down with the Navy. We had three months of intensive negotiation. And at the end, uh, we came up uh, uh, jointly uh, with, with a plan that the court endorsed um, that uh, preserved important habitat, kept uh, sonar and explosives activity uh, out of uh, uh, areas that were particularly important to, to vulnerable marine mammal species um, without in any way compromising uh, military readiness. And, and we think that that ought to be a paradigm for the way in which uh, the Navy goes about its, its training and testing um, uh, on, other, on other ranges as well. I mean, this can be a win-win for, for uh, both national security and, and the environment. And what about uh, air guns? Uh, sure, yeah, well, let, let me grab that. that. Um, I, you know, the movie depicts at the end um, some alternative technology to air guns, which are, you know, these these massive, uh, make these massive explosions, maybe 100, uh, 250 decibels, um, in an effort to see oil and gas deposits beneath the ocean floor. And... Um, in part related to litigation that uh, NRDC and other environmental organizations have been involved with, the oil and gas industry is developing uh, alternatives to air guns that are much quieter. Rather than making uh, explosions, they make a continuous uh, signal of sound that is much less intense uh, and that... Um, nevertheless creates a very refined image of what's beneath the ocean floor. Um, it's, not, it's not a perfect solution because it does involve putting significant amounts of sound into the water, but much, much less sound. Um, and if I may, I wanted to just go beyond the, the bounds of the film for a second on this issue of fossil fuels. Um, I think as so many of your listeners know, there are a lot of reasons that we need to uh, reduce and ultimately eliminate our, our use of, of fossil fuels. And I hope that people um, don't view this as a situation in which, uh, you know, the oil and gas industry has to do offshore oil uh, and gas exploration. Really, ultimately, they don't have to, and they must stop doing it, or we're going to face all sorts of uh, terrible global problems uh, from climate change and ocean acidification. SonicSea.org is the uh, is the website. Sonic Sea is the film, and we've had with us Michael Jasney, director of NRDC's Marine Mammal Protection Program. Thank you to you. Thank you, Tom. And uh, Daniel Heinerfeld, co-director of the film and director of multimedia and film at uh, NRDC. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Really a, a privilege. And uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah. Next up is Bread and Butter, a culinary chronicle with Lael Gilbert. 
My son brought home a birthday invitation from school the other week. Written on the envelope was his name, and underneath was written, E Familia. That was a little surprising. If you don't happen to have a third grader, the normal birthday drill is this. You get the invite. On the day of the event, you drop your kid off with a wrapped piece of overpriced plastic in some form or other. Then two hours later, you pick him up again, thoroughly saturated with sugar, mentally overstimulated, and clutching a baggie full of candy, which he says is his and won't let you even look at. Then you buckle him in the car while he's wiggling like a caffeinated border collie and bring him home to try and feed him dinner, at which he scoffs. This is the normal routine. I've done it 70 times. But I'd never seen the E familia before. This was something new. I'm all about trying new things. So when the day came, I tucked the whole familia in the minivan and we went to check this party out. The event was for my son's friend, Gustavo, who is about the most gentlemanly little third grader you will ever meet. When we arrived, he was sporting a dress shirt and tie, smiling and greeting all the visitors like a three-foot George Clooney. It soon became evident that we were probably going to be the only non-Hispanic faces in the crowd. I admit, I began to feel nervous. I felt like I was invading. I didn't know the language. I didn't know the rules. I felt alone. That didn't last long. First, the majority of the people there spoke English as well as I did. And even when they didn't, there were welcoming smiles and waves. And then there was the food. We got bowls of steaming pozole. That's a hearty beef stew made with a ruddy red chili broth. Had chunks of tender beef and heaps of sweet hominy. It was flavorful, savory, and extremely satisfying on a chilly afternoon. The pozole was topped with fresh diced onion and a herby kick of cilantro. Wedges of tangy lime were served on the side. Families settled around the tables and paced themselves, eating chips, having a second bowl of pozole, maybe breaking it up with a cupcake or two, laughing, talking, hugging Gustavo and patting him on the back, and then having more food. We'd been chatting, laughing, and eating for more than two hours, and I thought things might be winding down. But they weren't. Games came next. Everyone was expected to play, and to my surprise, even my self-conscious teenager was stomping balloons and carrying ping-pong balls on a spoon in his mouth. Then came the piñata. I have never laughed so hard watching a group of 15 kids whack it away at a minion-shaped cardboard box. Candy rained down on their heads. Turns out, the rule is to keep both hands on the stick. More laughing and screaming. Cake presents, talking, food. When we finally retreated to the minivan, my kids were seriously oversugared and clutching their bags full of pinata candy to stash deep in the back of their drawers where I would probably never find it. But somehow I didn't mind so much. This sugar had meaning. It was attached to laughter and joy and friendship. I'm a native of Utah. I'm white and I'm a Mormon. Since I live here, There aren't very many times that I feel outside of my comfort zone. There aren't many places where I'm unsure of the rules, where my footing is less than perfectly stable, where I might feel vulnerable. This party was one. Gustavo's family helped me feel welcome. 
It took a little effort on my part. I had to get out of the minivan. And it took a little on theirs. They provided the soup. We met in the middle. But truth is, they were already extending themselves. They have to extend themselves every day in this community. This isn't their comfort zone. It really was just up to me to show up to the party, to stand up, to speak up, and let them be part of my world. For people in Utah who are already extending themselves, no matter what your background, I have profound gratitude. To anyone who lives comfortably here, who might not understand what it feels like to be the outsider, to feel vulnerable, to feel alone, or unwanted, or out of your element, there has never been a better time to send out an invitation. You might get a bowl of pozole in the bargain, and I'd never say no to that. This is Lael Gilbert for Bread and Butter. You've all heard of Black Friday and probably Cyber Monday, too. You may have joined in with many other Americans on these post-Thanksgiving holidays, participating in the rush for sales and deals before the holidays really hit. This year, though, Utah Public Radio is offering you an opportunity to step out of that rush for a moment and celebrate Giving Tuesday with us, a holiday dedicated to charitable giving during a time of the year when we can easily get caught up with the hustle and bustle of the cheapest TV or pair of shoes. Help UPR grow this holiday season by becoming a sustaining member. Join us in celebrating Giving Tuesday, November 29th, by going to upr.org and supporting radio that matters. listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org.